0: Amen. I want to welcome everybody watching by streaming, and I'm sure your numbers have increased tonight. And uh, we welcome you there in your living room, wherever you happen to be. And uh, we're so glad that you've tuned in and have taken advantage of the streaming video ministry. Amen. Well, tonight we're in Hebrews. And how many of you read ahead? Oh, we're increasing every week. I'm getting more and more. How many of you meant to? How many of you didn't even think about it? Look at all those truthful people we've got here in the house of God. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at Hebrews 5, Hebrews chapter 5. And, you know, Hebrews is is deep stuff in this respect. It takes you back to the Old Testament a lot because Hebrews is written to Hebrews. That means the Jewish people. And they were coming out of Old Testament uh, life an Old Testament ritual, an Old Testament religion into a brand new walk with Jesus Christ. And so the writer is writing to them constantly, telling them, now don't go back, don't slide back, don't drift back, don't turn back, but stay on the path with Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we're going to look at Jesus as our great high priest. How many of you are glad he is your high priest? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight that as we delve into chapter 5 of Hebrews, that you, the great teacher of the church, you are, Lord, and the Spirit you sent, the Holy Spirit of God, is the great illuminator of the Word of God, and, Lord, we need you to help us tonight to understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what the Word of God is saying to us out of Hebrews. Now, would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive your word. In Jesus' name, help me to grow up in the faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, thank God for the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> amen, amen. Now, if you've been following along, we're doing a chapter... A week, And and that's something. I could spend three months on one chapter, but I'm not going to do it. We need to move along. But because it's so loaded with truth. It's so loaded with good things. But tonight we're going to do chapter five. And last time as we closed out chapter four, we were, uh, the writer was talking to us about Jesus as our compassionate great high priest. In chapter five, he's focusing on exactly the same thing. Now the only high priest they had known prior to the coming of Christ or the the top high priest the most recognizable one was Aaron. Moses' brother who was the high priest over the people as they crossed the wilderness those 40 years it was Aaron who served as the high priest under his little brother Moses. Now Whereas Aaron was the appointed high priest for the people under or people of Israel under Moses, Jesus, he's going to tell us now, is a better priest who offers a better priesthood. Now I shared with you that if there's one word that really typifies the book of Hebrews, it is what? Better. Better. Everybody say together better. better. All right, it's better. Better savior, better blood. Better faith, better covenant, better priesthood, and all kinds of things that the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us and has already told us is better in the new covenant. Better, better, better. And Jesus offers a better priesthood, and he is a better great high priest. Now, talking about priesthood and priest and all of that, let me just quickly share with you what the function was of a priest. In the Bible, the primary function of a priest was to assist God's people in accessing God so there could be union with him. The priest did this by acting as a mediator between God and men and also through being a teacher of the kind of life that helped the people to walk with God. So the priest did two things. He interceded for the people and he taught them God's law. The way I always picture Jesus is this. Here we are. And how many of you can say, when I came to the Lord, I was in sin? Really? The rest of you don't know? You're not clear? How many of you were in sin? And how many of you needed somebody to pray for you and stand in the gap for you? So, so when I picture Jesus, I always picture him here, and God is beyond him. Jesus is in front of me, praying for me, shedding his blood for me, standing for me, and beyond him is God, and he's turning to God, and he's praying to the Father for me. He's shedding his blood for me. He's removing the wrath of God between me and God. Jesus takes God's hand and my hand and joins them together. Amen? So he is my mediator, all right? That's the way Jesus that's what he does. That's who he is. So Jesus being the great high priest, that's what he's doing right now. The Bible says, he ever liveth to do what for us? Make intercession. Well, what is he doing? He's standing between us and God. And he's praying for you. And he's praying for me. He's saying, Lord, strengthen them. Lord, carry them. Lord, speak to them. Lord, protect them. Father, watch over them. Oops, that one down there, Father needs an angel. Send them right now. He's, he's praying for you and me. It says he ever lives to do that. So he is our great high priest, amen? Now, if you look at the Old Testament, the priest also offered the various sacrifices established by God on behalf of the people, like the burnt offering and the sin offering. And the high priest alone was designated to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. And only the high priest could do that. The rest of the priesthood could not go in, but the high priest could. Now, while Aaron faithfully performed his God-given duty as priest, Jesus is now the one and only final great high priest who intercedes for us before God. And how many of you can say he teaches us the way of true life? Amen? Thank God for the teachings of Jesus. And one of my callings and something that God's really put on me as a pastor is to share with the congregation that he's not only my savior, but he's my teacher. So we got to get that in our heads. He didn't just save me for heaven. It's not, he didn't just come to give me a ticket to ride one day or I should say a ticket to fly but he 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 is my teacher he's my wisdom he's my knowledge he's my understanding and I once I'm saved I'm to read what he taught about how to do life and everything that he said just Matthew 5 6 and 7 sermon on the mount that's enough to keep you busy for years so he's my savior He's my priest. We're going to see that he's also our king, and he's our teacher. He's our teacher. I love the teachings of Jesus. I I said to Cindy, I think this morning, I I was reading my Bible, and I'm going through the Bible in a year, and um, I, I do that every year, and I read about just a couple of things Jesus said, and it just struck me that nobody understood men and women, human nature like Jesus Christ. He understood human nature better than Freud and Jung and all of them put together. Amen? Now, the Bible says, starting in verse 1, Hebrews 5, let's read what he's going to tell us now in this chapter. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what the high priest did. Now, he's establishing what a high priest did. Now, look at verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Now, I want you to notice that any priest called by God can and should have compassion on the people for their faults because he, too, is weak and flawed. Amen? I'm called to the ministry. Pastor Corey's called to the ministry. Um, And really, by default, so is everybody in here. But as somebody called to ministry full-time, it's what I do, I can tell you that I'm more aware of my flaws and weaknesses and shortcomings than anyone in this room. I know that I need his grace as much as any of you. I cannot look at any of you condescendingly and say, well, you ought to be doing better. Because listen, I have struggled. I have been taken to the mat. I have really fought for my spiritual life in days gone by. I have wrestled with the devil. I have fought heavy temptations. I have walk through wildernesses. I've been through difficult times so that when you're hurting, my empathy and sympathy and compassion go out to you because I too need his grace. Amen? Amen. And, and these pastors and ministers that walk around acting like they never have a problem in life, I immediately don't believe them. I know better. Because until we go to heaven, we're all fighting the flesh. We're all fighting the devil. We're all fighting the world. And we're all leaning on him and learning to lean more and more every day. And we all need the grace of God. If you need the grace of God, give him a hand to praise tonight. Amen. Thank God for grace. Are you thankful for grace? Now, the next thing he's going to show us is that the priesthood is anything but a career choice. (laughs) Verse 4. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just like Aaron was. Now, let me tell you the truth about genuine ministry. Genuine ministry always begins with an irrefutable, undeniable, persistent call from God. If you're really called to ministry, your heart is going to burn for it. And the more you pray that God takes it away, the worse it gets. Until you are consumed by an all-consuming desire to minister the word of God to people and reach souls for Christ. It is an inner burning. It's not an intellectual idea. It's not a good idea. It's never a good idea to go into ministry unless it's a God idea. Because ministry will chew you up and spit you out if you're not called. And even if you are sometimes, it'll chew you up and spit you out. It begins with God's choosing, not ours. You know, I don't know. I can't speak for all pastors or all ministers, but I can tell you many, many, many times I have looked up and said, God, I don't understand why you called me. Why you chose me to go into ministry. I don't get it. Because sometimes I have felt so unfit for it. And uh, just, just looked up and said, you know, why? It's a mystery to me. Why? That all the people I was running around with and the drug culture and all messed up in the hippie world back in the late 60s and early 70s and just just the world that I was enmeshed in and God just reached his hand down and sovereignly touched my life and and called me. I mean, in the juvenile home, when I heard the gospel, I was the only one that got up 50 other you know, juvenile delinquent boys were there. But I was the only one that got up, and I got up. I can't tell you. Listen, it was by grace, because I remember thinking, I'm never getting up, and next thing I knew, I was up. And the grace of God helped me, and I was saved that night, and I was the only one that came. That pastor that that pastor that came and shared the gospel with us must have left discouraged, because I was the only one that responded out of a whole room. I tried finding him later to thank him. I could never find him. He, he was supposed to be a, a Baptist pastor. I was told he'd been a Baptist pastor. I had his name. I searched all the Southern Baptist roles, all the independent Baptist roles. I looked in the phone book. I did everything I could to find him. I could never find him. I wanted to thank him because he has no idea what happened to that long-haired kid that was scared to death. that got saved that night. The only one that came. He has no idea. That's why I tell you, never faint in the work of God. You never know who you're touching. You never know who you're reaching. And when I get to heaven, then I know I will find him. And I will thank him for leading me to Christ. Amen? And the writer of Hebrews is telling us that this was true, it goes without saying, of Jesus Christ himself. He didn't choose himself. He was chosen he says in verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, that is God, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the writer right there is quoting from Psalms 2 verse 7, which is the first messianic psalm. If you want to read the first messianic psalm, go to Psalm 2 when you get home tonight. It is chock full of messianic prophecy. It clearly predicts here the immaculate conception. Listen to the words again. You are my son, this day I have what? Begotten you. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The use of that word is very important because it tells us that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of young Mary. He did not have an earthly father. His father was literally God in heaven. And that's how he can be called the only begotten son. Never been one before him, never will be after him. That was the one and only, one time only, immaculate conception. Now, the writer is reasoning that if Aaron was called out by God to be high priest, then so much more is Jesus, God the Son, appointed by God the Father to be our great high priest. For whereas Aaron was called out from among men to be priest, Jesus was begotten of God by the Holy Spirit, literally overshadowing Mary. And that holy thing conceived in her was the very son of the living God. And if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Christianity is sandwiched between two miracles, an immaculate conception and a miraculous resurrection. Amen? Now, then the writer makes reference to a really mysterious guy found in the Old Testament. His name is Melchizedek. And I've never met a Melchizedek in life. I don't know that any woman has ever named her son Melchizedek. If you have, can I meet you after church? I want Because I want to meet your Melchizedek, because I never met one. Mel is the closest thing I know to it. Hey, Mel, Kizedek. But we find about him here in verse 6, the writer says, as he also says in another place, that is, the he being God, you talking to the son, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, there again, he's quoting a psalm. This time, Psalms 110, verse 4, where the psalmist makes reference to a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the first person in the Bible to be called a priest. He informs us that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you're like me, I read that and I go, what does that mean? Who is this mysterious man? And what is the order of Melchizedek? Well, we first encounter Melchizedek in Genesis following Abraham's victory over several kings that had gone to battle against the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that battle? If you recall, Abraham's nephew Lot had foolishly moved his family into Sodom. First, he pitched his tent looking towards Sodom. Then he ended up moving his family into Sodom. Then they built their house and settled down in Sodom. And it became the curse and bane of his life. But there was a time when Lot was living there with his family that the king of Sodom, along with four other kings, got into a ferocious war, a battle with four other kings. So you had five against four. And the Bible says that when Abram heard, oh, and by the way, the king of Sodom lost that battle. He had five kings going against four and the four whipped the five. Now, Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been taken captive by these victorious armies and carried away. Lot, his wife, his daughters, all of them had been kidnapped and carried away along with all of the goods and everything else they could, they could pillage in, in the city of Sodom. And so Abram said, I'm going to have to go after them. I, you know, I love the courage of a man of God. Because you know what Abraham had, and he was Abram still. It was before he was Abraham. You know what Abram had to, to fight, to fight four kings and their armies? He had 318 men. Real close to Gideon is 300. He had 318 servants who the Bible says, let me read it. Um, It says that he had 318 trained servants from amongst his own household that he had trained. So here you've got this great man of God who is being uh, groomed and prepared and prepped to be the father of our faith. And notice how he doesn't, let the servants in his house, because he was very wealthy, he had hundreds of servants, but he did not let any of them go to waste. He trained them to be mighty men of war you got to conclude that because three hundred and eighteen went against four kings and beat them. My personal belief is the anointing is what overcame them because Abram was a man of faith, and no telling how many angels were with he and his three hundred and eighteen. And they went up against four kings and four king's armies and beat all of them and rescued Lot and rescued his wife and his daughters and brought them all back and brought all the goods back to the king of Sodom. Now, if I'm the king of Sodom, I'm watching this and I'm going, wow, this is a holy man of God. This is a man of faith. And maybe I should listen to what he's got to say about what's happening in
1: my city. but he didn't. It should have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't.
0: All right, it was as Abram was meeting with the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom tried to give him money for winning the battle, and Abram said, I don't want your money. I didn't do this for your money. And he said, I don't want your money because I don't want you going out of here saying that you made Abram rich. My blessing comes from God Not you, especially not a pagan sinful king in an exceedingly sinful city. I never want it said, you made me rich. It's God that made me rich. Now, as he's meeting with the king of Sodom and they're having this little discussion and somewhere along that time frame, literally Melchizedek steps onto the pages of scripture out of nowhere. We've never heard of him. We don't know who he is. Suddenly he's there. Genesis 14, 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God most high. And he blessed him and said to Abram, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then he, Abraham, gave to Melchizedek a tithe of everything. Now, heretofore, we know nothing of this man. We don't know anything about this guy. Out of nowhere, he's there. We're told he's the king of Salem, and the king of Salem means the king of peace. Salem meant peace. So he's the king of peace. Now, now what we're going to learn, and you can start recognizing it now, is that he's a type of Christ. So doesn't it make sense that he would be the king of peace? He's a type of Christ in in the Bible. And he's the priest of God, Abram's God. He blessed Abram's God. He worshiped Abram's God. He appears to celebrate Abram's victory and he blesses the God of Abram and he also attributes Abram's victory to the God of Abram. And not only do we hear the word priest here for the first time, but we also hear the word tithe for the very first time. Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe of all. So he gave him a tenth of everything he brought back from that battle. He wouldn't let the king of Sodom give him anything. But he gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. So we have the first priest and we have the first tithe. Now we're going to look more closely at Melchizedek in chapter 7 when he spends virtually the whole chapter on it. But let's lay some groundwork in our understanding of Melchizedek because he figures big In the book of Hebrews, the commentators suggest that Salem was likely ancient Jerusalem. So when it says he's the king of Salem, it's probably referring to ancient Jerusalem, of which Melchizedek was king. He was the king, more than likely, of ancient Jerusalem. Now, we know that Jerusalem lay on Abram's route homeward, And it was within a reasonable distance of Sodom, so it makes total sense that Abram encountered him on his way home. Melchizedek being called a priest suggests that some kind of offerings were made by him on behalf of his people, or he would never uh, have been called a priest, because that's what priests did. They made offerings on behalf of the people they were interceding for and served as mediator for between them and God. So he must have been offering some kind of offering in ancient Jerusalem on behalf of God's people. Hence, he's called priest. But he was a king priest. He was the king of Salem, but he's also a priest on behalf of the people. Now that, folks, listen carefully, sets him apart from Aaron. It puts him higher than Aaron. This is why Abram gave him a tenth, tithe to him. Because he was greater than Aaron because he served as a king-priest, a priest-king, not just a priest, not just a king. So he's greater than Aaron, and that's what makes him a type of Christ because our Jesus is not just our great high priest, but he's the soon-coming king of kings and lord of lords, and he's going to serve as, and rule as king over all the universe when he comes to set up his millennial kingdom. And I am praying that that is sooner than later. What about you? Amen. And when King Jesus comes, there's not gonna be any more elections. Not gonna be any Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. Not gonna be any more voting boos and cheating at the voting booths. Not gonna be any more taxes. Not gonna be any more crazy laws. No, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to rule the nations with a scepter of righteousness. And so the the thing the writer of Hebrews here is wanting us to get is that Melchizedek was a type of Christ in that he was a king priest. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, that's what he's referring to. The order of Melchizedek was, I'm a king and I'm also a priest. Jesus is after the same order. He's a king and also a priest. And that set him above the whole Aaronic priesthood where Aaron was a priest only. So that's how we can say in the new covenant, we have a greater high priest because he's a king priest and not just a priest. He rules as a king and he is also a priestly mediator between God and his people. And if we could see into heaven right now, let me assure you, Jesus is praying for everybody in this room right now. And you, you're probably thinking, oh, you know, Pastor Jeff, that just throws me. How can how can he pray about all of us at once? I can only think about one person at a time. How does he do that? Let me ask you if I had a thousand needles and I stuck you at the same time with a thousand needles, would you feel every one of the sticks? Of course you would. If I stuck you a thousand times, you wouldn't just say, ooh, that one on my leg hurt. But if they were happening all over your body, would you feel them all over your body? That's a weird kind of an illustration, but I'm showing you that we are the body of Christ. And so when we hurt, he feels it. If it's a million of us, he still feels a million hurts and he prays for a million needs. Are you with me? Uh, that's kind of a pulling out of error illustration, but I think it makes sense that he can feel the pain of all of his people, all at once, and he can intercede for all of us at the same time because he is king of kings, Lord of lords, very God. Amen? The things I think about up here, I I don't know where that came from, but I think it worked. All right. Next, the writer switches gears to focus on an intense hour of prayer on Jesus' part. So he's really switching gears now. He's been talking about Jesus as the great high priest, but now he's going to talk about Jesus as the suffering Messiah. Verse 7, who, that is Jesus, in the days of his flesh when he was a man, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. Stop there, I believe, and so do most of the commentators that I read, that this is a reference to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what makes the most sense. It describes an intense prayer. Watch this. Loud cries. Your Savior. My Savior. If you'd been within earshot of that garden, you would have heard Jesus crying loudly.
1: Loud cries, desperate cries, cries with great volume,
0: and hot tears. It says vehement cries. That means almost convulsive cries, constantly crying out, tears streaming down his face. Dr. Luke, and it makes sense, it was Dr. Luke that really homes in on this moment because of what happened to Jesus as he was praying this way. Luke informs us in Luke twenty-two forty-four, for he was in such agony of spirit that he broke into a sweat of blood with great drops falling to the ground as he prayed more and more earnestly. I'm gonna suggest to you tonight, it's the first of several places he shed blood. It wasn't just on the cross. He's shedding blood here. He was in such agony of spirit, he broke into a sweat of blood. The corpuscles burst in, under his skin. We all know what it's like to be really sick, and afterwards, blood vessels are broken along your eyes, and we can tell you you've been really sick because of the intensity with which you were sick. Listen, he was so intensely in prayer over what he knew was coming He knew he was headed to the cross. He knew what that entailed. He knew he was going to take upon himself the sins of mankind. And he knew that for a brief season, he would be separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as he took our judgment upon himself, there was a momentary separation. He knew that was coming. And he so dreaded it as a man that as he prayed, he prayed with such intensity, the corpuscles burst. And he sweated, sweat, H2O, mingled with blood. I've read accounts, medical accounts, where that has been documented with other people experiencing it. Not often, it's rare, but it's been documented. Jesus was a man. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to catch here. He was a man. The writer of Hebrews tells us he was praying to the God who could save him from death. Now, we got to be real careful here because Jesus full well knew that he was born for this moment to die for the sins of mankind. So you got to be very careful how you interpret this because he can't be asking to be delivered from the cross because we're told that God heard him. And if he had been praying for deliverance from the cross and God heard him, he would have never gone to the cross. So what did God hear him about? What did he pray for? What was he crying out for? The Greek word translated into from death, the word from there, from death, from, is the Greek word ek, and it means out of. So a better interpretation of the phrase might be, he wasn't praying for deliverance from death itself, but out of the fear of, of what he was about to encounter. He wanted out of that. He wanted God to strengthen him. He wanted God to comfort him. He wanted God to help him in his hour of need. Same way we're supposed to pray. We're to go boldly to the throne of grace and cry out for grace, for mercy and grace to help us in the hour of need. That's what he was doing.
1: Remember, Jesus was in
0: all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he knew full well what the cross was about to bring. And so God heard his prayer and brought relief because we're informed by Luke that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Amen? So God heard him. God heard him. He was delivered out of the dread in the sense that God comforted him the angels strengthen him, stealing him for the dark hour ahead. The writer takes us from this very moving moment. I, I tell you, I I have to move along, but when I read things like this, or I read to this day, when I read, for instance, Matthew's account of the crucifixion, I can hardly handle it. The way our Savior was beaten, abused, mocked, and ridiculed, and and Slapped and the thorns thrust down on his sacred head, and he bled. That's another place he bled. The the thorns. He he bled in the garden. He bet, bled from the thorns. He bled from the beating. He bled from the whip. He shed the sacred, innocent blood many times. I believe seven total times. I'll preach on it sometime. So the writer now takes us from the garden to tell us more about what Jesus experienced. Verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, again, we've got to be careful here. For Jesus did not learn obedience like you and I do. We learn obedience because our natural inclination is to be disobedient by sinning. Amen? I mean, I don't know about you, but God chastens me when I've messed up. But here's the deal. Jesus never messed up. So he didn't learn obedience like we do. Jesus had no such natural inclination. He didn't have Adam's fallen nature because God was his father. So he didn't carry within himself Adam's fallen nature. So what is meant here is that as God's son, he learned obedience by experiencing obedience as a man. He learned it by experiencing it as a man. Just like somebody might learn experience... uh, of tasting meat by eating it. Jesus experienced firsthand the difficulty in obeying a very hard and difficult command from God, yet without sin, because God's will was go to the cross. It be thy will, Father, help me to avoid this cup. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but yours be done. That was Jesus experiencing the pressure of obedience to a hard command. He tasted it. Just like it says, he tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2, 9. As a man, Jesus tasted the difficulty and hardship of obedience, and he tasted death for you and me, so that we won't have to taste it. Amen? And having been, verse 9, perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, one more time, we gotta be careful here. Because on its face, this verse seems to suggest that Jesus had some imperfections that needed perfecting. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. So that sounds like he had some imperfections that needed to be perfected. But that is not at all what it's saying, because Jesus had no imperfections. Amen? He had no imperfections. There wasn't a fault in him. He was perfect. Having been perfected means he consummated all the work he came to accomplish. His work as our Redeemer was perfectly completed. And that positioned him to be our great high priest, king, and the author of our eternal salvation through his shed blood. So his character was not perfected. His work was perfected in that it was finished. That's why on the cross he said those three words, it is finished, perfected, completed, done. Amen? Can we thank the Lord that he went all the way to the cross and perfected our salvation right there? Amen. Now we're headed towards the close. Next, the focus uh, changes. Verse 10 of chapter 5 in Hebrews, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, we got that. Verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now notice how he's turning his attention from Jesus, the great high priest, to the spiritual condition of the people to whom he writes. So there's a gear shift here. He says, now that I've told you all about him, let's talk about you. Everybody say, uh-oh. He says, you have become dull of hearing. In other words, they can't appreciate the meat of the word because they're stuck in spiritual infancy. You have become dull of hearing. Look what he says in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be a teacher, you need somebody to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now he's shooting very straight with the Hebrew uh, people here, the Hebrew Christians, and those that were close to accepting Christ. He's saying, look, by this time, you ought to be out there teaching the word of God. You ought to be involved in ministry. You ought to be reaching others for Christ. You ought to be... uh, uh, doing a Sunday school. You ought to be teaching some class. You ought to be out there. You ought to be off the bench and onto the field and in the game and carrying the ball. But you're not. You're you're stuck. You're stuck. And I'm going to tell you something, church. There's a whole lot of Christians that have been saved a long time, but they're stuck. They have not grown beyond infancy. They are still wetting their diapers. They are still on milk, and if you give them meat, they choke on it because they don't have any teeth to chew it with. They haven't grown
1: up. It's too quiet in here for my
0: uh, comfort. (laughs) Do Do you ever get the feeling that I should be further along than I am? Come on, tell the truth. I have. I should be further along. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like I'm not really growing like I know God wants me to? Tell the truth. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, right? Here's what he's saying. He's saying you, you ought to be out there rightly dividing the word of truth, ministering Jesus to people, and instead you're stuck. You're stuck in the crib of spiritual infancy. And then he tells us the hindrances that are caused by spiritual infancy. Verse 13, for everybody who partakes only of milk, here's the problem, is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, I wanted to look that one up in another version, so I'm just going to give you a paraphrase the Living Bible. Listen to this You are like babies who can drink only milk, not old enough for solid food. And when a person is still living on milk, it shows he's not very far along in the Christian life and doesn't know much about the difference, uh uh-oh, between right and wrong. He is still a baby Christian. What does a baby Christian mean? How does it manifest? How can you spot it? When they are presented with something that is very wrong or at least kind of wrong or fairly wrong, or 45 degrees wrong, and they don't see it. They don't discern it. They can't tell. You know why? Because it says you're unskilled in the Word. You don't have enough of the Word in you to tell what's right from wrong, what's good from bad. There's so much I could say here. I will tell you, and again, I have all kinds of faults, shortcomings. I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking to you. And, and to those watching and, and later by radio listening, let me talk to you straight for a minute. As a long-term pastor, I'm amazed at how Christians who can sit in church and hallelujah, kumbaya, praise the Lord, lift their hands, but go home shacking up with somebody. And there's no concept of, gee, what does fornication mean? It is a Bible word. Can everybody say with me fornication? And yet they live in that, but come to church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. They want to teach. They want to minister. I say, wait a minute. But you're in sin. Oh, no, no, no. God understands. God has told us we're married. Oh, Really? really? And how many people has God told you you're married to? This is just the current one. (laughs) I'm only giving you an example. There's lots of examples. And and, and it just blows my mind that Christians today have no concept of this kind of thing. It's like, let me tell you, when I got saved and spirit-filled and I started following Jesus, me and all my friends, my male buddies, We knew what fornication was. We knew what sexual sin was. And we knew what God's word said about it. But today's culture, if you feel it, it's got to be right. If you don't feel it, it's got to be wrong. We're not submitted to God. or I should say to God's word, we're submitted to our emotions. And we say, well, if God gave me the emotion, because I'm feeling a real warm fuzzy here with this person. So if God has given me... Uh, you know, a, a real great emotional high with this person, that it's got to be right. No, 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 no. Listen, your emotions will lie to you. Your emotions will lie to you worse than almost anything in the world can lie to you. So how can it be wrong if it feels so right? It can be real wrong no matter how right it feels. But that's just an example. He's saying here that when you're stuck in spiritual infancy, you, you don't have any discernment. And we don't want to be that way, folks. Um, Do you know that there are people who are born with an inability to feel pain? They have no nerve endings. They can't feel pain. It's a disease. I I can't remember the name of it, but I've read about it. And these people are a danger to themselves their whole life because if they put their hand in a fire, they can't feel it. If they break a bone, they can't feel it. If, If they get cut, they can't feel it. And so they can be walking around bleeding out and not even know. They have to have people with them, and they have to be very, very careful. And you can get that way if you have no discernment. If you have no discernment, and you're not growing in the Word, you're not growing in grace, you're not putting roots down, but you're staying stuck in infancy. You have no discernment of what is hurting you and what isn't. That's the idea. How many of you want to know if the devil's running a number on you? Come on, everybody. How many of you want to know if the devil is attacking you? How many of you want to know if the devil is trying to take you out? Come on. How many of you want to know if you're spiritually hurting yourself? A child puts into his mouth things hurtful and things uh, nutritious without any discrimination. But not the adult. An adult will say, no way I'm eating that. The child will say, I'd love to eat that. And that's why they get in trouble so often. But here's the deal. So the writer is expressing frustration. They should be more discerning. And he encourages them at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what we're going to read next time. Read it with me out loud, everybody. Let's stand together. I want you to read it with me. Because this is where we'll pick it up next week. Can we read it together? Let us stop going over. I've got two of you. I want everybody reading this with me. Are you ready? Let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on. Say that again. Let us go on. One more time. Let us go on. Instead, and become more mature in our understanding. Amen. So, do you know that I love you? Everybody say, I know you love me because I wouldn't be this truthful with you if I didn't. If I didn't love you, I'd lie to you up here. I'd tickle your ears in hopes that you give a bigger tithe or that you stay in our church because sometimes you come here and you get convicted. If I didn't love you, I would tell you all kinds of nonsense to keep you, but I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna tell you the truth because I know the truth is what makes you free. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's lift holy hands to the Lord tonight. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. We bless your holy name. We magnify you. Lord, thank you that you're our great high priest interceding for us. Thank you that you're our king ruling over our lives with love and peace and protection. Thank you, Lord, that you're our teacher teaching us how to live life successfully how to walk in the kingdom of God victoriously. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. And now, Lord, we give to you our own lives. And as the writer of Hebrews, Lord, turned his attention to the people to whom he wrote. He wrote to us as well. Lord, we pray that you will help us to grow in grace. Everybody say, grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. you say, help me to grow, Lord. Sharpen my discernment, Lord. Help me to be a mature Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing one worship chorus and we'll go tonight. Sing it with me now. Let's lift hands to the Lord and let's worship him. glad you made it tonight. Wasn't it good to get into the word of God? Now next week I'm going where very few care to go. Hebrews 6, where it talks about it's impossible for those who once tasted of the powers to come and so on and so forth, if they fall away, to renew them to repentance. Is that talking about losing salvation? What is that talking about? I'm going to be there next week. Will you? Amen. Amen. This Sunday, I I believe I'm going to be talking about the wheat and the tares. I'm going to deal with the second parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. And why in the world does he allow wicked people to keep on being wicked right next to me and you? I'm going to answer that. Amen? And I'm going to show you, you're sown into the world like a seed. He sows you. I'm going to stop there. I'll preach the whole thing. Lord, bless the people as they go. Bless them in Jesus' name. Thank you for your grace and favor in helping us to grow in grace. In Jesus' name, get everybody home safely. Amen. God bless you. Have a great, great night.